Ahoy, authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 127 of the Writership Podcast. Today, we're talking about the intersection of genre and sales category. I'm Leslie Watts, here with certified StoryGrid editor and author of dystopian and post-apocalyptic fiction, James Thorne. To learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. Jim Kukrell of the Author Marketing Club and the Selmore Book Show is doing another big conference, this time in Chicago, next month, that's May 2018. It's called the Selmore Book Show Summit, and you can learn more and get your ticket at sellmorebookshow.com slash summit. That's sellmorebookshow.com slash summit. Before we dive into the submission and discussion for today, I want to tell you a little bit more about my guest host, James Thorne. You may know him better as author Jay Thorne or from his many podcasts and his other endeavors. You can find out more about him and his books and his podcast and his editing services and his Authors on the Train events at jthorn.org. That's jthorn.org. Now, I'm really lucky to have James here today because he writes post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction, which reminds me, be sure to check out The Final Awakening, which is a series he writes with Zach Bohannon. It's excellent. So James is also the author of the Post-Apocalyptic Reader's Guide, which isn't specifically for writers of this type of fiction, but it's a great resource if you want to find out more about what it takes to deliver a satisfying story of this kind. And that expertise is particularly important for today's show because we're talking about reader expectations that go beyond the specific content genre, those that we sometimes call sales categories, are made up of a combination of the content genre, which is like action or society, the reality genre, which is looking at, is it fantasy? Is it realism? Is it what we call factualism? And the style genre, which is what you know, you might look at if you're looking at a drama, a comedy, an epistolary novel. So these are all aspects or qualities of a story that the reader might be looking for. So when we say post-apocalyptic fiction, that is really shorthand for a specific pattern or collection of these qualities. And it's important to understand these and know what your reader is looking for so you can deliver the story that you intend. Okay, enough about all that. Let's get into the discussion. Welcome, James. Hey, Les, what's up? <laughs> oh, you're... I'm I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm super excited to have you here. And just after you've you've practically just stepped off the train. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Zach and I and, and eight lovely writers uh, finished uh, a week of authors on a train in from Chicago to New Orleans. And uh, I'm still a little woozy from from the the train ride home. But yes, I, I'm back on uh, firm ground and uh, home turf. Excellent. Well. Under these circumstances, it feels a little unkind to ask you this, but do you have a quote for us? I do. Uh, this uh, I'll read the quote and then tell you who it is. Uh, Quite how dystopia has gone from a literary form beloved of the political satirist to a cinematic genre beloved of YA franchises is a bit of a mystery. While 1984 and Brave New World will forever be the great twin pillars of dystopian fiction of the 20th century, so far in the 21st century, 
nightmare futures largely been a metaphor for grown-ups don't understand me, while that near cousin of the dystopia, the post-apocalypse, has grown more and more popular. Writers seem more interested now in how humanity deals with a complete breakdown of society, whether it be because of famine, disease, or zombies, rather than a society which is deliberately broken to favor the few. And uh, that is a quote by Dave Golder, who is the former editor of SFX Magazine and the author of Dystopia, Post-Apocalyptic Art, Fiction, Movies, and More. Right. And I right, I picked um, that quote. Uh, I'm, I'm giving it away. I'm giving <laughs> away the game a little bit because I read it in your book, The Post-Apocalyptic Reader's Guide, um, yes. which is a great uh, collection of essays and um, examples and suggestions. And it focuses more on the post-apocalyptic, but there's also some great references to dystopian stories as well. And I, yeah, it's a really, it's a great resource. So yeah. if the, you know, what we're talking about here is like that the, the stories, the types of stories in this arena have shifted and changed a bit, but still, I mean, or I would say more relevant than ever. Yeah, yeah, and I'll, I'll also add too that uh, I hadn't intended of creating a reader's guide, but what had happened was I was doing a ton of research for um, another post-apocalyptic series of mine called Baron, and as I was doing the research, I was reading books and watching movies and taking notes and. And so when I started drafting, I had all of this research and I'm like, wow, this, this could be helpful to other writers who are interested in post-apocalyptic dystopians. So that's kind of where the idea came from. Oh, that's so great. I love how you, um, you know, find what works for you and then share it with other writers too. It's really awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Let's turn to today's submission. It's called Epoch Earth by Tasha Giordano. And by the time you're hearing this, it should be published. It's YA dystopian. The word count is 65,000 words. And the scene we're looking at today is from the beginning. And I should let you know that it's a bit gruesome. So take precautions that are necessary for those circumstances. Okay, here we go with Epoch Earth. The Glitch, May 13, 2241. I was 13 the first time I saw someone glitch out and die. The man barged in the room as I stood there, not setting the table, mentally cussing the stupid dress my mom had forced me to wear. He pushed past me, close enough to knock the cups from my hand. They shattered as they crashed to the hardwood floor. My silent curses shifted to him. He clawed behind his ear like a beast. My mouth opened to ask what he was doing when I caught a whiff of his burning flesh. It sizzled, calling to mind a juicy steak, but quickly turned foul. I huffed hard out of my nose, as a dog would, to push the stench from my head. Tears and spit ran down the man's face as he fell to his knees. And that face, agony, masked his features so much that I feared him as I would a monster. My heart thudded and begged my lungs for oxygen. Both of the man's hands covered his ears and a low growl erupted from his contorted lips. I watched, frozen, as he dragged himself to a small wooden table in the corner. The world around me went black except for the scene of him crawling across our dining room floor. A discolored patch of skin peeled from behind his ear. Blood matted dark brown hair to his neck. The fingers of his left hand dug into the bare floor. I heard nails crunch. The one arm dragged his entire body as his right hand scraped at the back of his ear. I grabbed the wall beside me to stop the world from spinning and steady my legs. 
As his fingers found the table leg, he pulled himself upright. The growls turned to pitiful moans, which tore at my heart. The man hunched over as if to vomit. Before I could wonder why he crawled all the way there to puke, he bashed his head on the table. If you've never heard a human skull smack against a wooden table, the dull thud of a splitting watermelon, I suggest you keep it that way. Every thwump sent shivers down my spine and bile to my throat. Between thuds, his bloodied hands still tore at the flesh behind his ear. His finger disappeared, knuckle deep, as he rooted around in the hole he'd made. Heavy seconds trudged along as he retrieved his prize. The chip was larger than most at half an inch square. Upon seeing it, relief softened the inhuman mask of his face. Congealed blood hung from the corner, ready to drop in the already darkening puddle of him on the table. The chip hung out of his head by a slimy tendon, exposed but still connected to his auricular vein. I heard a low moan, then recognized it as my own, as air found its way into my lungs. A hollow sigh escaped the man's lips as he flopped to the floor and twitched. The table teetered, and dishes rained down on top of him. Glass shattered in the distance, and my mom screamed. The commotion snapped me out of my daze as she rushed to his side. Mom cradled his mutilated head in her arms and kissed him, chanting his name. Kerning. Kern. Kern. Her tears poured over the carnage of my dad's face as she synced with him. Her mournful wails harmonized with his last gurgles creating the most gut-wrenching song. Mom's head flung back. Dark locks of wavy hair dragged the floor and soaked up my dad's coagulated blood. My legs turned to jelly, and I leaned hard against the wall. Through my fingers, I stared at the chip-to-chip mind meld between my parents. Fear strangled me. The air stuck in my throat. Breathing ragged and shallow with him, as one, my mom escorted my dad on his journey out of this world. Only the whites of her eyes were visible as they rolled into her head. Her grief song died as his chest heaved. Never did I run to help my dad or cry out for my mom. I just held my breath and the silverware and watched. In my defense, I was a kid, but still, to stand idly by and allow your flesh and blood to be reduced to a pile of, well, flesh and blood, disgraceful. Silence blared as my dad's body expelled the last of itself onto our dining room floor. The floor that a week ago he'd sworn to finally get around to polishing the floor where that morning my mom had yelled at me for leaving my hollow pad. This was the floor where my dad glitched and died, taking the innocent little girl inside me with him. Electric charged air stung my chest as my body forced me to breathe again. My ears and skin buzzed. After my dad's last twitches, My mom's cheeks returned to near pink. Her eyes, black and barely open, settled back into their normal positions. She straightened herself, smoothing damp, matted hair down her blood-stained apron. Turning those empty eyes toward me, she whispered, Cinta, go find your brother. I got as far as the bottom of the stairs before my feet stopped cold. The screech of my sneakers on hardwood echoed through the quiet house. I crumpled in on myself, shaking and heaving. My stomach turned. My mouth watered. 
every muscle in my body seized. The morning's breakfast found its escape onto a large bamboo plant beside the banister, leaving me no time to hold back my halo of dark curls. Mom's going to be so mad, was the only coherent thought I could manage. I'd witnessed something too big, too heavy to comprehend. Instead, my mind latched onto something it could handle, something immediate. I had puked in the last present my dad had gotten my mom. Tension released its grip on my head and gut, now purged. As the physical pain subsided, it left a void for the mental anguish to fill. My mind picked at the fortress it tried to build around the memory of my dad's death. I saw it again, darkness falling away. My mind's eye focused on the blood-soaked chip hanging from his neck. He almost had it. Would that have made a difference? What if I'd helped, run to him and yanked it out for him, called for my mom? Would he still be alive? If I had set the table like mom told me to, the dishes wouldn't have fallen on him. Did I kill him? I killed him. I killed daddy. Cinta, I'm hungry, came a shrill voice bounding down the stairs. My wet face snapped up in what must have looked like a snarl because Brooks screwed his tiny face up, ready to cry. Unsure if my legs would hold, I eased myself up and wiped the vomit from my bottom lip onto the dress. I couldn't stop the momentary tinge of satisfaction at ruining the stupid thing. Still heaving, I swallowed the last lump of stomach contents that hadn't made it out and exhaled. I'll make you a sandwich. Go back upstairs. Two little bare feet dropped one step lower. I mean it, bit. Mommy told me to feed you upstairs. I attempted a stern tone. I heard stuff. A grubby finger tapped at the chip behind his ear. His eyes begged me to tell him it was all right. My heart jumped, then stopped. It's fine, Bit. Daddy just fell and got an owie. Mommy's fixing it now, but we have to stay upstairs. I motioned toward the playroom and gave my best imitation of Mom's now face. But... Now, I yelled the command through our chips. Images of my dad's bloody chip flew through my mind. I struggled to keep them from broadcasting, too. Brooke's eyes widened. Since the removal order, we weren't supposed to chip back and forth, not even inside the house. If anyone found out we still had chips or that our parents had illegally chipped Brooks? I smiled and shooed him on. Everything's fine, Bit. Please do what I said, and wash your hands for Stone's sake. Brooks scrunched his nose. You go wash yours, the little boy screeched with laughter and ran up the stairs, straight to the playroom. I looked down at my hands. Spittle had mixed with days of grime to form a gooey layer of slick mud, which I promptly wiped down the stupid dress. Okay, so we have the submission for this week. It's pretty clear, you know, that the indications are that it's dystopian, and that's what the author said as well. So we're not, it's not like we're guessing. So what I wanted to start with maybe before we dive into actually talking about the nitty gritty of the submission is what's the difference between post-apocalyptic and dystopian? Because they seem to, there seems to be some overlap. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, um, there is overlap and it's all, those terms are also used 
interchangeably quite often, and they're not necessarily the same thing. Uh, so I think that sort of the most efficient way to explain it is is um, dystopian is really a story about culture or society, and it usually deals it's usually a way, a lens for a reader to try and uh, demystify what's happening around them. And it, it almost always has to do with uh, injustice or uh, inequity. Um, there's usually a sort of a, a faceless, oppressive uh, government or ruling body that then s- somehow is in control of the masses. And uh, so that's, that's sort of what uh, dystopian is, is really about. Um, and it's uh, and, and there are certain conventions that we're going to get into, but uh, you know the dystopian itself translates to not good place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, so it's really about sort of um, it's sort of about the the, the situation, uh, or it's it's about the you know the the setting and and the world that the the main character is in. Whereas post apocalyptic is much more action oriented. Um, it's usually more of like the lone cowboy slash lone cowgirl story. Um, it's, it's, it has to do with one person or a small group that's in a, in a world that's been destroyed, and, and it's really about their survival. Uh, so you can have a post-apocalyptic story set in a dystopian place, um, and that's where maybe some of the confusion comes in. But, but those, are, those are really sort of the differences, I think, in the two. Right. Oh, that's really useful because... I know for me, I have conflated the two and just kind of, yeah, they're bad places. It's not quite <laughs> like what we have here today. So it's right. all the same, right? Well, no, right. there are these and distinctions that are important to understand. Yeah, there really are. And even if you're not, um, if you're not well steeped in either, uh, there are two cultural touch points, I believe, that everyone sort of, there's shorthand for these that will, will make the distinction clear. And that would be like The Hunger Games versus The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Like The Hunger Games is clearly dystopian and The Walking Dead is clearly post-apocalyptic. And there's overlap and there's similarities, but they're very different experiences. Uh, and I think they're trying to do very different things. Right. So when we're when we're talking about either dystopian or post-apocalyptic fiction, we're talking about sales categories as opposed to content genres. Mm. And <laughs> and so one of the things we wanted to talk about today is the intersection of the two. And so when we have, I've talked about the, the story grid genres before the main 12 content genres. And, and then this is you know, this is a little different. This is the sales category. So that means right where you would shelve it, your book um, on the in the bookstore or on Amazon. But there are in terms of implications for the craft, we still have to think about these things. It's not like you start thinking about sales categories, only when you finish the book, and you're ready to publish it. Correct. That that would that could be catastrophic for you if you are looking to be successful commercially. Yeah. So we have to. It's it's all it's stuff we have to consider. Yeah. So so when you come to you know we're looking at this the submission today in terms of we've got right we've got the opening scene and it's. Um, it's you know it, uh, it's hard to know exactly, but we we can kind of presume that this is the this is meant to be the inciting incident, the 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 event that kicks off the story. So yes. in terms of dystopian stories, how should the author approach that? Yeah, it's um th- this is one of those this is one of those really gray areas. Uh, so I want to I want to start by saying um, that I thought there was a premise in this story, and it's only I only have six pages of it. So um, forgive me if I'm making a judgment on on the whole manuscript, but I think there's a really strong and interesting premise here. Uh, we we sort of there's an inc- you know the the incident um, with the chip and and uh, and and the way the protagonist 
interacts with her brother is really fascinating and it really hooked me. So I want to I want to make sure the author hears um, and Tasha, I believe, right? Tasha, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's a that's a really fascinating premise, and I think there's a lot there. Um, uh, to to your question specifically, one of the one of the issues with making sure your sales your your reader expectations are consistent with the sales category is because there are certain things that readers maybe won't articulate, but that they expect. And if you don't deliver those, it's not that they're going to think it's a bad story or it's poorly written, but it's it's going to be frustrating because it might not be what they were in the mood for. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you are, if you have a story, a romance, and you have it labeled as um, mystery, and it's and uh, you know, and and someone thinks it's a mystery, and they start reading it, they could be very disappointed that it's a romance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for for this particular sales genre, for dystopian, the the general convention in the inciting incident for dystopian. Uh, literature is that um, we are slowly brought into and shown this oppressive society because that that's a key element thematic element plot device in most dystopian fiction you you have the oppressive ruling class uh, and it, it could be faceless or not it, it could be sort of an enigmatic leader or it could just be an organization but we as the reader need to be shown that we need to sort of know how bad this place is. So if um, so if you if you skip past that or or you or you don't set that scene for us, we it's hard for us to get some context on just how bad this place is and what's happening. That's a great point because I'm thinking that right if 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 dystopia it dystopian fiction is about the place and probably much of the time will coincide with a with the an external content genre of society yes where we're dealing with power struggles within you right. know within a a unit uh which could be family it could be political it could mm-hmm. be you know it could be almost any setting but within the setting there are these power struggles and then you have Often, like you were talking about with the Hunger Games, you have also a, a worldview maturation or a coming-of-age story within that is really typical and seems to be right what the what readers and moviegoers are really craving from this genre right now. Yes, and it's really... Uh it's really a matter of sort of studying what's resonating with people and what they're connecting to and, and delivering that. And, uh, you know, the hunger games, as we talked about is, is really probably the most contemporary and, and relevant dystopian, uh, piece of fiction out there. And if you think of Katniss, even in the movies, you know, um, Katniss, the, the, the story starts where, you know, Katniss is basically, um, she has no power she um she's a cog in the wheel her family has no no influence or power and uh you know the inciting incident you could say it, it's her stepping up spoiler alert and uh, <laughs> and taking inciting the place of her sister right but like we know like we're shown that world first we know like we know how bad it is we know how oppressive it is and and that whether you like the hunger games or not like that that's the that's sort of the goal you're shooting for. Like if you're writing dystopian, like that is, that is the story that um, you, you're not, you're not copying it. You're not replicating it. It's not a formula, but that's a convention I believe that is, is your best suited to keep in dystopian. Right. Because we, we have, right. I've taught and I've talked to before about the, the obligatory scenes and conventions that go with the content genres. Mm-hmm. So, or, you know, we could call them tropes or we could call them reader expectations. So, and again, when you get into a particular sales category, it's that the, right, it's the reader is exactly as you said, looking for a particular experience. They yes. want to go through a process from, you know, learning a, about, you know, a society, a bad place mm-hmm. and, 
and see a character coming of age in the midst of that craziness. And, um, and that's what really resonates. And I think, you know, like you were talking about how this helps us to, we're trying to make sense of our own times and that things are pretty chaotic right now. They don't feel settled. They don't necessarily feel safe for a lot of people. And so when we read about these just everyday teenagers, particularly young women, because they don't have they're 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 a bit disadvantaged (laughs) (laughs) yeah we we talked a little bit about this and uh you know my daughter's 12 so it's like Mm -hmm. it's definitely something that's you know a top of my mind but uh you know we talked about the young people have have historically been sort of suppressed because they're they're not adults right they're not they don't know any better and then teenagers are even worse because their their brains are kind of screwy uh scientifically speaking and then out of the group of teenagers, like teenage girls, I think, um, have the biggest battle to fight because uh, they're, they're too old to be protected as a child, but they're, they're not quite women yet. And, and, and there's, there's just a lot, of, there's a lot that they have to deal with. So I don't think it's an accident that the protagonists in a lot of YA dystopian fiction in the past 10 years have been sort of these disenfranchised, um, saddened, <laughs> downtrodden teenage girls. Yeah, because if you have, right, I, you want the power differential to be really great yes. in, in a society story. And so you have this really super duper powerful tyranny running the show. And then you have teenage girls who are, yeah, as you say, not protected because they're not little anymore. And they're almost threatening, it seems, in a weird way. And mm-hmm. so they're, yeah, they're very, got to keep that down. Yeah. <laughs> just... yeah and, and you could throw any sort of like sexual undertones in there. You could throw any, uh, you know, uh, class struggle. I mean, you, you can fold a bunch under that. And, and you're right. I think that's the most, that's the most polarizing extreme is you take a teenage girl versus like the, the quote unquote establishment. Like you, you're not going to get much further apart than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we would normally start with introducing the world and kind of settling into that. And then we would have ordinarily for this, for the sales category and, you know, an inciting event that yanks the particular character who's right. I, I think you also mentioned we're talking about an every man or every woman rather than a heroic character. Yes. And yes. that their world gets turned upside down. And that's generally the inciting incident. So if we were to look at the in in this particular submission, we have the inciting incident of the um, Sinta's father is right. Something goes wrong. There's a glitch uh, mm-hmm. uh, with her father's chip, and it and he's experiencing extreme uh, suffering and <laughs> and pain and like I can't even express it. It's so big, um, and he's trying to get that out of there. And uh, Sinta is. I think, 13, I believe, when she mm-hmm. watches this, which is, I mean, it's it's got to be terrifying and traumatic. So in terms of a, you know, an inciting incident in a dystopian story, does that fill the bill? It's close. Okay. Uh, I, I, it's a, it's very powerful emotionally. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, what it, and, and what it can do, and, and I think, you know, my suggestion to Tasha would be to consider, uh, I think she could keep this as the inciting incident. Uh, and I think there's a way that she can really empower Cinta. And um, in channeling my inner Sean Coyne, uh, I, I would almost present it as um, either an, an irreconcilable good or a best bad choice. But I would make 
that uh, whatever Sinta decides is what directly causes her father's death, as opposed to it being coincidental or accidental, as opposed to her sort of standing on the sidelines watching. Like, um, maybe Sinta, maybe her dad um, knows that the, the government knows that he's got this chip, and he basically says, like, you either have to, you know, if you take this out, I die, but then they don't find the family. And then she has to make that decision. Um, right. That that would be, you know, again, if you think to Katniss, like Katniss has a, has a really hard decision to make in the inciting incident of the Hunger Games. Like, does she does she speak up and and most likely commit suicide um, by volunteering, or does she stay quiet and let her little sister die? Like, yeah. it's that's a tough choice. Yeah. You know, and then as the reader, you're immediately you're immediately bonded to that character no matter what they choose. Like you're going to you're going to really identify with that so that the the incident of her father's death is more causal than coincidental. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. I, there it seems like there's a hint of that with the mm-hmm. with the cups. You know, if I had set the table earlier, I think was what was what she was thinking about and it's okay. not it's not really that right obviously those the things that she's thinking about she doesn't have any responsibility at mm-hmm. all but if that were if that were the case then that would yeah that would make it even more powerful and help us connect to Sinta and be willing to go okay I'm in it with her that's a crappy decision for a 13 year old to have to make yeah, the responsibility that she has to take, and you know, it, it could be it could be as simple as as adding a little um, uh, coffee shop segment at the beginning, you know, where where Sinta's dad is sitting down with her, and and this is also where we get the glimpse into this world. Like maybe you know he's explaining in some shorthand what has to happen, and she's begging, like, no, no, dad, you know, it can't be this way. But whatever whatever the author decides to do, I think empowering her very early on uh, it would be critical in sort of um, tethering her experience to the reader's experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. So when I was going through it, I noticed that there are we've got some really strong visceral uh, descriptions mm-hmm. of what's happening um, that like we can see feel what's going on, um, smell, hear, you know, there's all, we're, we're getting both the sensory input plus the very, like those feelings, the physical feelings that come when you observe a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. But w- what I was noticing was that, that there isn't emotion it feels mm. like. And so yeah. although we're really, you know, we're in the experience, but we're missing this one key point um, because, right, we start off the man barged in the room mm-hmm. and, and it, you know, we, a few paragraphs later, we find out that it's her father. And so I was, you know, I was pulled up short there a bit about, well, did she not recognize him? Was he, you know, he was he changed in some way that we, you know, that made him unrecognizable or what, you know, because I also thought it's odd that a strange man is just in your, <laughs> you know, in in your dining room. And so that was, you know, so I was thinking that, right, in terms of trauma, and I'm definitely not a trauma specialist, so I don't <laughs> want to put that out, but but that we could use her, you know, the emotions that it's evoking in her because it feels, it feels like she's really detached and people have all sorts of reactions to traumatic events and shock is, is a very real thing, mm-hmm. but that there would be something happening I, under the surface, some feelings, you know, is, was my thought about that. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I think the um, Tasha's choice to use first person signals to me that she wants this to be um, a very intimate 
and and powerful story. And uh, so, like, uh, here's an example. I think this is what you're talking about in the in the third, second, third paragraph. The sentence is, it sizzled, calling to mind a juicy steak, but quickly turned foul. That almost sounds like third person to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the ways that this can be, uh, th- that this can be made more powerful is even saying it out loud. So you have a great opportunity in first person to, to be Sinta, to, and, and you can say the I and you can be the character. And, and, uh, you know, and put yourself into that situation if you saw a loved one whose head was catching on fire, like what would you say in first person? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that might be a way to kind of tap into that because I, I think what you're saying is it has a sort of a journalistic feel as opposed to more like a personal feel. Right, right. That we're getting the observations, but there's no, even um, at a distance because, you know, the first line is I was 13 the first time I saw someone glitch out and die. Mm -hmm. And so we are, Cinta is telling the story at some point in the future. So she has some distance on this, Mm -hmm. but she's reporting it as if, you know, uh, yeah, almost journalistically, like this is what happened. This is what I observed. And we don't get the, the emotional stuff the um right if the inciting incident of the scene is that you know her father is having this attack from within then what is the what is the desire that arises from that right Mm -hmm. this bad thing happens what do i want now do i want well i mean obviously she's going to want it to stop you know, for things to go back to the way they were before, but we don't have that on the page. So it feels Mm -hmm. a little disconnected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, So I think when we get into when she's interacting with her brother, right, there's a little more of that. You can tell she really wants him to go upstairs and, you know, like she does not want to have to deal with explaining what's just happened Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of um we get more of that more of her experience it seems and what she's feeling about what's going on yeah yeah and i i mark that as uh that's a really interesting scene turn it it was unexpected in a really good way Mm -hmm. uh you know to have this traumatic experience and then the little brother shows up like that's a great complication and that could be that could be really rich, and and I think it could. The, the contrast of that really depends on how she's reacting to watching her father, which, as we said, like it, it it's a little more journalistic than personal. So um, maybe rectifying those two and putting them together could make a really cool turn in the scene. Yeah, like you have to, you have to, uh, you know, I don't. You have kids, so you know, like when something bad happens and you're not really ready to explain it to them, or maybe they're not mature enough to really get what all is going on, and you have to pull it together. Like, that's tough as a parent, as an adult, Mm -hmm. but as a 13 year old, that's it's asking the impossible. Yeah. And so we can really, like, that's there's so much potential to pull us right in and be. Not only has she gone through this horrible event herself, but she's like she pulls it together to help her brother avoid that, to protect his innocence for yeah. a little while. It's really, yeah. it's a as you say, it's a great turn. Yeah, it's her that. save the cat moment too. It's it's where right. it's where she shows the reader, um, where the author shows the reader like how empathetic and caring this young girl is. The fact that she would do that like that she would spare her brother from the the pain that she just had to suffer yeah Mm -hmm. yeah awesome so we have uh yeah a couple of things that could really make this stronger and knock it you know like really hit the dystopian um sales category Mm -hmm. right the expectations for the reader for that and also then make the scene even more powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I for me the big takeaway here is 
is show us show us this world and show us what's at stake. Right. And I think if you can do that, um, then then you're you're really delivering what uh, what readers of that genre will expect. And as you said, um, if you're reading a ton of dystopian fiction, then you're going to know like what which are the conventions you can ignore or innovate on or ones you have to keep. And um, I, I believe this is one you have to keep. I'm just one person's opinion, but I think having showing us that dystopian world in the beginning is is a really important one. And we also talked, you know, about there's there's so much conflicting advice on craft and marketing and publishing. And one of the things that you tend to hear is, well, you know, you should really read across all genres because that's going to make your your writing, you know, more rich and varied. And and that's true. And then the conflicting advice is you should only read the genre that you're really passionate about that you're writing in so that you learn all the conventions. And that's true. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, it's a question of timing. Um, if you know the genre inside and out, you know the conventions and the tropes, then you should read other stuff to, to kind of learn some other ways other genre writers are doing story. Um, on the other hand, if, um, you know, if you're looking, uh, if you're, if you're not reading in the genre, then, then you, you might not get those right. And, and it might, from a sales perspective, it might leave the, the, the reader dissatisfied. So it's really about where you are and doing a self-assessment and then figuring out what you need to do to tell the best story you can. Oh, that's great. That's great. And that brings me to the editorial mission <laughs> for the week, which is really, it's more than just a week, but it's important for, it's important for your story. So I'm going to tell it, I'm going to, I'm going to insist. No, I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to insist. No, but what I want to, I really want to encourage you to do this to the best of your ability because it will help you tell a better story that more closely hits the reader's expectations and delivers the experience that they are looking for. So the editorial mission for this week is investigate the intersection of your genre and sales category. So first you have to nail down your content genre and that's one of the big 12 and I'll share the list of those. And we have that great chart with the needs and, <laughs> and all of that that I can share again with, with you. So if you're having trouble nailing that down, then nail down your sales category. What, you know, are you, it doesn't matter what your sales category is. If you're doing dystopian or post-apocalyptic, if you're doing a cozy mystery, if you're doing a category romance, that like you want to get, you want to nail down what you're going for so that you don't end up in a different place with a mm -hmm. different story. So then to find out what readers want, read books in that genre and in that sales category. And if you're, you know, if you're still nailing it down, still focusing, you know, till, still trying to figure out what exactly do I need to deliver and what can I, uh, what can I change up or innovate, then focus on those within the genre and within the sales category. Then when you're ready to really innovate and, and think about this genre and this category in, in in new ways, then focus on books outside of the genre and sales category. And those will give you ideas for ways to really make it make it your story the same but different. Deliver the experience that they are expecting in a surprising and and delightful way, if you can say that about dystopia <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i'll even add like that's as that's as uh, a a concrete of a task is going to the amazon top 100 for dystopian mm -hmm. and and studying the titles the covers the descriptions reading as many of those as you can i mean luckily uh you know not only is amazon a great place to sell books but it's your number one research tool as well absolutely that's a great point because yeah, that's where, right? I mean, like love them or not, <laughs> there's a lot of information there. 
Yeah, there really is, and it's all uh, it's algorithmic driven, and um, and it's it's updated hourly by sales. So th- that is the best way you're going to find out um, the difference between what people say they want and what they're opening their wallets for. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Holy heck, yes! Okay. <laughs> um, awesome. So, so just a reminder that if you if you're on the go and you didn't get all of that down, you can go to writership.com/episodes to sign up and have those editorial missions delivered right to your inbox, uh, or also find them. And then the additional resources, uh, James's book on. Uh, post-apocalyptic fiction, like that guide, and to find where you can contact him as well. All of that will be in the show notes, and I encourage you to go check those out. And yeah, that's it for today. Great. Well, thanks so much uh, for having me on. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking story with you again, uh, and I have a feeling we're, we're going to probably end up crossing paths again in the near future. I hope so. It's been it's been just delightful. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. Remember, Jim Kukrell of the Author Marketing Club and the Sell More Book Show is doing another big conference, this time in Chicago in May of 2018. It's called the Sell More Book Show Summit, and you can learn more and get a ticket at sellmorebookshow.com slash summit. If you enjoy the Writership Podcast and find it useful, consider joining our Patreon crew. The reward at the quartermaster's level includes the Writership Book Club. Each month, we choose a book and then discuss it in a video call. For more information about the book club and other ways to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash writership. Another way to support the show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. I read and appreciate each one, so thanks for taking the time to do that. If you want to have your five pages reviewed on the podcast, please visit writership.com slash submissions. That's it for episode 127. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Ready for Leslie and Clark to help you find the treasure in your manuscript? Submit your pages to writership.org forward slash podcast.